Let's Talk Bitcoin listeners. It's now time for The Startup. The Startup is a show featuring the founders of new companies. We want to discover how they took an idea and transformed it into a marketable product or service. Starting a business is challenging and rewarding. Our goal is to gain insight into the mind of entrepreneurs on their journey to success. Let's welcome Adam B. Levine, the CEO of Tokenlease. How are you, Adam? I'm good, Michael. Thank you very much. For those that may be tuning in for the first time, can you give us a little background introduction? Sure. Um, So I started life as a podcaster way back in 2005 and uh, basically found that as the medium that made the most sense to me. And so over the next you know number of years, I wasn't making money or doing this professionally, but it was the thing that I was having the most fun doing. You know, I probably have at this point maybe seven or eight hundred episodes released under various shows under my belt. It was kind of a natural thing when I came to Bitcoin that a podcast would be it. Long story short, um, we're two and a half years from that point where we started Let's Talk Bitcoin, and it's grown from just a show on a Tumblr blog into a network with its uh, own, you know, with its own everything. <laughs> with its, uh, we've we've invented the wheel in so many ways. It's almost kind of hard to go down the list because just, I'm just so used to it at this point. That kind of was the broad impetus for the Tokenly project and now the Tokenly company was that all of the things we were doing with Let's Talk Bitcoin as a show and Let's Talk Bitcoin as a network had this kind of. Uh, gap in it. And the gap was giving people the ability to really participate in the network. And then once we had that ability with our LTB coin rewards program, the gap became not, you know, having the token, but figuring out how to actually make it so that normal people could use it. And that, you know, normal people who could make their tokens valuable, who could, you know, create a token that people would actually want to have and want to use would be able to use it because there was this big gap between people who had good ideas of what could be done with a token and people who actually could make tokens valuable because they already make things valuable. You know, whether they're a a store or a brand or whatever, there are all kinds of things. But individuals very rarely, you know, like it's it's just not the way that things work. The uh, adoption and utility comes from being able to use things and use comes from people being able to accept things and acceptance until we built the tokenly tool set was really really hard. So that's kind of the in a nutshell of how we got from there to here. Now, this is my this is my first time as an entrepreneur uh, that is working with a company that intends to be funded. Everything else I've done, I've always done entrepreneurial projects, but they've all been powered by volunteers as Let's Talk Bitcoin has mostly to this point. Um, because it was all hobby. So this has been kind of an interesting journey for me because I came into this space and really had no ambitions of starting any sort of companies or doing any of these things and saw a lot of projects start and a lot of projects fail in large part because, from my opinion, uh, I think that the instincts of the people who were creating the projects in large part were wrong. Um, and that there is a type of ethos that you need to bring to projects when you're working in a decentralized space with cryptocurrency and things like that, that reflects and takes advantage of the things that are offered by those technologies and doesn't instead try to kind of hide them and abstract them away. Ironically, turns out much of building the company tokenly has been abstracting away those complexities, but we've done it in such a way that doesn't sacrifice the advantages they give. It just makes it easier for users. So that's that's pr- it's pretty much the starting point. Okay. What was your motivation for starting the LTB network and what problem were you trying to solve? Well, when I started Let's Talk Bitcoin, the reason to start it was because there wasn't anything else. 
And so when I came to Bitcoin, I, I had bounced off of it a few times. And in 2013, I, and actually it's funny, I had started a few Bitcoin shows before that, but they had never really caught. Let's Talk Bitcoin corresponded. Um, we released those first episodes uh, during the bubble in 2013. And so the price had spiked from, I think it was about you know 30 or $50 earlier up to about 200 and. And so we had this huge rush of interest because we were the only podcast that was out there. We were talking about things besides the price, um, which was also very important to me. And um, uh, uh, and there was so much interest. I mean, that was the main thing is just that like when you look at the way that Bitcoin media, specifically cryptocurrency media, especially in hindsight now over these last two and a half years, you look at the chart of Bitcoin price and you look at the chart of, you know, let's talk Bitcoin network popularity, and it correlates almost perfectly. Because again, just like t cryptocurrency is one of those things where unless you really feel the problem, then you're only interested in it because, you know, the feel the problem that it's solving, then you're only interested in, in it because it's going to make you rich, right? And so that was what, in large part, it was sold to early people who got into it who weren't there because, oh, decentralization provides solutions to my problems, but because, oh, well, I'm going to make a lot of money because this has gone up in value a lot. So it's it's interesting because like we really take it from that other perspective, from the perspective that the price is an indication of interest and it's the ideas, people, and projects, that's the catchphrase that I've been using now for more than two years, that are the important part because that's what we can learn from. You can't learn anything from the price outside of, hey, I made some money or, hey, I lost some money. But you can learn things from the individuals who are actually doing this stuff. And in a time where there are no best practices and where this is just, I mean, we're, we're breaking new ground no matter which direction we walk in just because it's never been done before, you know, that's really the valuable part. Whether they succeed or fail, the experiences are what matter. Okay, because I, I remember a piece there because I started listening to the network uh, in April of 2013. And I remember that the community started growing. And so I seen the evolution that you grew with the community and you came out with the coin. But I heard in other interviews that you talked about there was a bootstrapping problem. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, the bootstrapping problem is actually why we started the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, because whether you're talking about a podcast or really anything else, any type of business, the first couple of hundred customers, the first couple of hundred listeners or users or whatever it is that you're looking for, really, that's the hurdle that needs to be overcome. And once you've overcome that hurdle, then it kind of becomes a self-feeding cycle where people who are interested in it can actually recommend out and you get that kind of word of mouth thing going on and you can grow very quickly from there. But getting that first couple hundred or that first thousand users is really, really difficult. And so the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network at the point that we launched it, you know, every time a podcast would go out, would, you know, join the network and go out, they would go out to you know thousands of people where previously they'd been talking to tens or hundreds and so that really was you know it was so that's kind of how we helped people to bootstrap um bootstrapping ourselves gosh um that was pretty much just us <laughs> you know that was like all, all the hosts of let's talk bitcoin and uh you know just, just producing the show you know that really was what it was just providing a consistent uh you know kind of layered approach 
to new episodes coming out on a predictable basis. I think it was important that we were more than weekly because it took us kind of out of that normal schedule that people get into with podcasts where, oh, well, these are all my weekly podcasts and put it into a different category where, oh, this is a podcast that comes out more frequently, so I have to prioritize it because otherwise I'll fall behind on episodes. So, um, I did not realize that there was there was some madness to the twice weekly show strategy. Well, if you think about it, actually, um, so the show that I did right before, so that that two days a week is actually down from five days a week, which is what we started the show as. The show was originally called the Daily Bitcoin. That was the first brand that uh, I wanted to go in with. And uh, I actually had the weekly Bitcoin and the daily Bitcoin. And I wanted to stay weekly for, you know, I wanted to do, to do it weekly. And actually what I wanted to do is kind of like a video show that would be like a weekly, you know, highlight and recap of everything that was going on. And I forget who it was who I talked to, but basically it didn't take long before I was convinced, even though I was the one doing the editing, that we should be producing a daily show and that the daily show should be edited and going out the same day. And so I did that for about a week. And then I completely collapsed, and we actually had a ton of interest. It was really, it was a fan, it was a fascinating experience because I had, you know, more offers from people to give me money, and more offers from people who wanted to do stuff from the show. But the reality was, is that it just couldn't happen. It wasn't, it wasn't doable. So two was my compromise. Two was the less than one. But then as time went on, I kind of felt like that was the important part was that making Let's Talk Bitcoin into something that people could rely on as just some interesting thought. That really was all it was. We weren't aspiring to be anything but just interesting, thought-provoking content that most importantly was content dense because that was another thing that I really is a pet peeve for me is uh, like radio content in theory is really, you know, should be engaging, but in practice it's not. And it's because the value that is in there is so spread out, you know, like they stretch out 10 minutes or 15 minutes worth of content over what is effectively an hour once you've uh, taken into account all of the kind of host-to-host -host banter that is maybe personable but doesn't actually tell you anything, and then the uh, advertisements on the other side. So we went into this kind of with that idea, was that we were going to provide a service, provide something that was very dense, and then in hindsight, again, uh, you know, about six months in, I realized, really, this is a historical record. We're talking with a lot of people who are then going on to do very impressive things, and we're talking to them early. So the fact that this is out there means that, again, that perspective that was already valuable when we talked to them originally can be even more valuable as time goes on because it represents a very early look into what would become big projects. I like that. I like that. And and I can tell you, I've, I've gone back and listened to a lot of the previous recordings and I can see the, how they're valuable because there's, it depends upon what you're doing as a podcaster. If you're driving somewhere or if you're just consuming it and you're at one level of interest, but as that interest continues to increase, you may go back and say, oh, I want to listen to that interview again. And it has more value from the second time or third time because you have a, a better context of what's going on. So I could see that. Yeah. The great part about podcasts just is that they really are forever. You know, like, and that's something that is a little bit more new now than it used to be. I have no episodes, for example, um, uh, except the ones that my father uh, has saved on a very old machine with iTunes on it from my original 2005 show. And we did, you know, 220 or something episodes of that or so. And, uh, and those were like two hours long. So, I mean, like there, there's a huge amount of content that is possible that is out there. But because until somewhat recently, you know, this stuff wasn't necessarily being preserved, it kind of all gets lost. But yeah, I think that, you know, especially with stuff like what we're doing here, where we were so early into Bitcoin, that was really the important part. 
And it was just important to get in there. And to, again, the reason why we do an edited show, for example, is exactly the same reason. It's because when we were talking to these people, like David Schwartz comes to mind uh, from uh, the Ripple Project. Um, you know, these are people who are incredibly smart, and yet they have a real difficult time speaking about this stuff in large part because their brains move faster than their mouths are capable of keeping up with. And so you uh, you find that when you're talking about live or you're talking about video or you're talking about any of these other formats, they don't really do so well in it because that that uh, you know verbal filler that goes in there really gets in the way of people understanding what the actual point is and it makes it less about the idea and makes it more about the person and that again like the people are important but the ideas really are what matters the people are just vehicles for the ideas well it's funny that you mentioned that because one of the reasons why I wanted to start this show was to really give the, the entrepreneurs opportunity to talk about the product or service that they're offering. But then the second aspect, I want to understand what an entrepreneur goes through from a psychological aspect of running a startup. How does he have to pivot? What changes he needs to make? How does he deal with, with family and running a business? How do he adjust uh, to the funding requirements of running a business? All of those types of things. So I, I think that there is value in that. I, I I agree with you. Um, I'm not sure how many answers I'm going to have to you to these questions. I'm you know happy to give you my perspective, but like I said, this is my first time through this meat grinder. So you know I've been through other meat grinders before, but this one is definitely new and unique. Well, it's funny though because when I say, well, Adam, are you running a startup now? And you say yes, it's called Token Lease. But to me, LTB Network itself was a startup. Well, and to a large degree, it is. I mean, there's yeah. I mean that that you you are correct about that. This is a hangup that I have. And it's something that I've been trying to deal with and something that I think we are going to deal with. Um, my role at, you know, Let's Talk Bitcoin and the LTB network, you know, I've always just wanted to be a content creator. I've wanted to be a content creator and I've wanted a platform that would give me the opportunity to do that without treating me unfairly. And so I feel like I'm a, I'm a fair person. I am very, uh, you know, like results oriented and, um, you know, just in general, I feel like I'm a good leader for stuff like this because I really don't care. What I care about is that the rules are applied on an equal basis to everybody and that the rules, at least to their own logic, make sense. And so when you're talking about any type of, you know, any type of enterprise, whether it's volunteer or a startup or not, leadership is required so that you, don't, you aren't just going in a million directions. Um, if anything, I would say that you know, I have been sort of derelict in duty when it comes to, uh, to token, not sorry, tokenly, um, when it comes to uh, the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, because in large part, I never intended to start the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. It was just something that kind of happened. And, you know, and of course, we, it happened with a set of assumptions that we were going to be able to provide monetization services for the people who are using the network rather than just a platform. That was something that was definitely important that, you know, solving that bootstrapping problem for, uh, you know, for new shows out there was definitely important. But we also really wanted to help them make money. And we launched the network right at the peak of the bubble. And when, when, uh, you know, when people were spending a lot of money and feeling like they had a lot of money to spend and it's, we've never really gotten back there since. So we brought the network on, we've had success in, you know, expanding wildly the number of shows that are available on the network. And we've done it in such a way that it hasn't taken anything from the podcasters. It's been purely additive, you know? Um, so like we, we don't even have written agreements with them. They simply follow the rules of the platform, which means not falling outside the bounds of what is acceptable according to our stated rules. Um, and, uh, 
and they produce the shows on their own and they post the shows on their own. And so long as they continue to meet that minimum level of quality, then they have the use of the platform. It's, it's available for their use. That is the point. Proof of participation. How did that come about? Because I think that was a brilliant idea. And, and before I let you answer that question, I could just remember once you started, the coins were issued and you came out with the schedule and you, you published the document. And then you explain how proof of participation works and what the reward was for each individual action. But for me as an end user, it created this psychological habit that I wanted to earn these points. And so it incentivized the user base and it worked. It, I mean, and it worked and it still worked. So from a, a user, that was brilliant. How did you come up with that idea? Proof of participation. Um was an idea that came to me after I had seen the um, the ProtoShares project um, do such a good job in its first weeks of making everybody want to be part of that project. And they did it by accident. They uh, had what was effectively supposed to be a two-year distribution schedule, but because it was tied programmatically to mining um, and to certain metrics within mining, uh, it wound up essentially exhausting itself in about three or four months. And I watched that and I participated in it and I thought it was just absolutely the smartest thing I had ever seen and it created this incredibly cohesive community where they had there had previously before been nothing and uh, really did a great job. It was, in my opinion, the best thing that the uh, BitShares team has done so far and it continues to be their greatest contribution and it did absolutely. It was the inspiration for proof of participation. Um, so proof of participation took the idea of uh, making it so that everybody could mine and said, okay, well, if everybody can mine and we don't need miners, then how can they mine in a way that is beneficial to whatever the thing is? Let's let's rethink what mining can become. And so for the users, and so you can take this concept and apply it to pretty much everything. When we applied it to the Let's Talk Bitcoin uh, platform, it made sense to incentivize a couple of different groups. It made sense to incentivize content creators who were actually creating content that would cause people to have a reason to visit the community if they weren't just there to be part of the community, which was important. Um, we thought it was important, and then in that in that circumstance, it was important to both have a stable reward. So that's so uh, when people create content for us, they get paid twice. They get paid uh, on the first Saturday after they release, and they get one uh, whatever they get one share essentially of the total amount that is being given out to content creators during that week based on the number of posts they have. So if there are ten posts uh, in a week and you wrote one of them then uh, you get you know, one-tenth of whatever the LTV coin amount is. And then three weeks after that, there's a second round that is what we call proof of value. And proof of value um, looks not at, uh, it's not flat rate, it looks at um, all the metrics that we're going to talk about in proof of participation, basically. It looks at how many magic words have been submitted, it looks at uh, how many uh, different unique individuals have looked at your post. It uh, includes the amount of Oh gosh, comments. I think that uh, each individual post gets there. I think that there's one or two other things too. Um, and then it com it takes all of the pieces that were released in that you know three weeks prior period, and it compares them against each other with these as their scores. And then if you know, so the 
you know, the, the one that is the most popular and had the most, you know, comments and all these other things proportionally gets the most and it kind of goes on down the list. So you have the one uh, round of compensation that is flat and it's just based on having post. And then you have the one that's based on the incentivized layer where we want, you know, the best performing ones get rewarded uh, more and to the detriment of the worst performing ones. And then the uh, other side of it, of course, is like you said, proof of participation. And that was all of these things. That was commenting, that was um, entering magic words, that was even just looking at pages. Every time that as a new, as a user, you visit a, um, a content page, you know, or like a podcast page or a blog post on Let's Talk Bitcoin, you actually are earning uh, points that will then get you LTB coin at the end of the week, not just for you, but like I said, also for the content creator. So there's this nice kind of synergistic relationship that comes into play where it's not really about how did you come up with the specific things and it's more about when you look at a system, what adds value to it? Whatever adds value to it. Why are people there? If, if, peop if, if you know, like, again, the audience plays a role in that. If there was no audience there, then why would content creators want to participate? If there was no content creators, then why would the audience want to participate? So it just kind of aligns the incentives in such a way so that everybody benefits. And, and you know, and it's not, you know, again, and, and the other part about it is that it's not expensive. And that was a thing that a lot of, you know, people have asked, why don't we just give out a rewards program in Bitcoin? And some places actually do do that. But that's the problem is that it is literally very expensive because instead of being able to create this token that you then make valuable or hope to make valuable in our case, um, uh, you actually have to put out value up front, which is much obviously more expensive than not. How important do you think proof of participation was to keep the user base engaged and involved with the network. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't actually think it was that important. I think that to a, to a certain subset, and there were not certainly just one subset, but there were a couple of different subsets within the community who really, really latched onto this and saw it as a just not, not only awesome program, but frankly, a way to make money. And that was something that we didn't really expect. Um, really the thing that I learned from the LTB coin rewards program so far is that you have to have the complete picture before you start doing one of these things. Otherwise, it's very, very difficult because the situation with LTB coin was such that we were able to start giving it out, but nobody was able to use it effectively for anything outside of these very, very specific events. And so we were given out a lot of it. More than 50% of the LTB coin has already been given out now that we've just crossed the first year border. And the amounts are going down quite quickly. So we're past this kind of broad distribution stage. And now we're into the point where the value of it really has to make itself known. Otherwise, it's there's not much point in it being around. So we, this kind of brings us back to Tokenly. That actually is the reason why I've been so focused on building solutions like Tokenly. Um, and for, you know, before I started Tokenly, I was already focused on this. I realized this pretty much as soon, you know, the first month that we had the... Uh, that we had LTB coin out, that we were going to need solutions to be able to easily use tokens beyond the wallets that were already available, that we were going to need to be able to you know, sell tokens and to let other people sell them too, not just us, because that was another thing. We could sell tokens early on, but it was this really hacky system that uh, Nick put together in a couple of weeks, and it worked well for our purposes, but it couldn't scale. And so that, again, is, is what we wanted to do, is because this problem, although we were one of the first to feel it, you know, I was one of the first people to launch a token like this, and then to really realize, oh, snap, now that I've done this, that became the easy part. The token is simple, and the part that's hard is anything that I or anybody else wants to actually do or use with the token. So 
from what I've been observing about Telcoin, it's basically a three-pronged strategy. One is the wallet. So me as a, a token holder, that's where I can deposit my tokens and transact them back and forth. Then there's 10, which is the actual the redemption of a token once I once I want to redeem it. And then there's the swap bot for as a token creator, if I want to exchange one value of token in exchange for my token. Is, is that an accurate description? That's the what we call the alpha ecosystem. And yeah, Tokenly is a really, really ambitious project, um, but it's layered. And so this first layer, you pretty much hit it. Those are the things. There are a couple of points to, to point out, though. One with the swap bots, anybody can create a swap bot. You don't have to be a token creator. So Michael, for example, if you, you know, think that you can really, you know, sell sponsorships for Let's Talk Bitcoin, you could buy sponsor tokens from us in bulk from one of our bulk vending machines. And then you can create your own swap bot, fill it up with sponsor tokens that sell them at below our retail prices, but above the price that you paid for them at, at the bulk rate. And anybody who you sell them to or anybody you know who buys them from, you can then redeem them with us. And you can make a profit between the difference between the bulk price that you pay and the um, you know, and the the retail, you know, or closer to retail costs that you're able to achieve from it. So that's kind of that was that was a really important part for us was making it so that it wasn't just about coin creators and it wasn't just about very specific users, but that these were just generic, basic ground level tools that anybody could use for whatever the purpose is. Okay, so in that scenario, I I can go through and purchase a, a bunch of token lease and then hold on to them. And go back and resell them and they'll be honored by the ltb network well we're not talking about token leads in this case that's a different token we're talking about well the example i was giving you has to do with sponsor tokens which are redeemable for a sponsorship of the let's talk bitcoin show just as an example but the but but that but that is kind of the important thing to realize is that once a token has been sold it can be resold. It can be gifted. That's one of the things I'm really excited about, actually, is that as we get more merchants who are offering um, different products in token form, like imagine using uh, a Bitcoin mixer, right? You could use a Bitcoin mixer with tokens and have an automatic gift exchange system where people put in, you know, fixed values of different tokens. Like I put in a token that's worth 60 bucks and it gives me back $60 worth of other tokens that other people have put in and mine gets, you know, split up or sent to somebody as a whole thing or or whatever. But I mean like once you get the products represented as tokens, then all the crazy stuff you can do with Bitcoin suddenly now you can do with products. And that's a really really interesting set of things kind of that uh, that are going to become possible. The magic word for this episode is LTB network. That's LTB N-E-T-W-O-R-K. Go to letstalkbitcoin.com and enter the magic word to receive your reward. Now, back to the show. So you talked about the layer and you said the token leaves, the pockets, which is the wallet, as well as 10, that is tokenly alpha. And that's layered. What's next? It really depends. Actually, we haven't really picked. Um, the plan right now with Tokenly, and this kind of gets gets to the question of when do you pivot. Um, right now, Tokenly is being developed as what I would call an, a pure infrastructure company. And so our purpose is to build these sort of base level tools that once they exist can be taken, like you could take Swapbot and Tend uh, and package them effectively into 
uh, tokenly pockets. Like if, if somebody wanted to do that right now, we're going to be doing it in the reasonably near future. Um, like you'll be able to, within the wallet, look up a token and then uh, open up all of the swap bots that accept or, uh, or sell that token and pick the one that you want to deal with and work with it right in the wallet. So there's a lot of stuff like that where you can start combining what are essentially standalone components right now, but are really designed to be modular components in the not too distant future. And then once you've done that, once you have, okay, well, you've got a wallet built in, you've got the ability to sell tokens and the ability to redeem tokens all built into the same application. And the application isn't running the infrastructure, it's being provided by tokenly through APIs. Um, basically you can build anything <laughs> that's really what it comes down to and so i've i've got a bunch of papers that i've written some of which will be uh, published in the reasonably near future and some of which i'm still hanging on to while i'm working on but yeah that's really kind of what i see as next so right now we are attempting to fund tokenly as an infrastructure company where we are going to enable all of these use cases and be kind of like a dropbox company or like a wordpress company where we develop these tools and then we offer hosted versions of them but ultimately, there'll be components in other people's uh, applications. Just as a basic example of what one of those later level applications could be, um, we could talk about Audible. Audible is an audiobooks platform that is uh, owned by um, Amazon. And it's probably the most popular audiobooks platform out there. It's a perfect example of a tool that you could take what we've built and essentially build a much better version for everybody but the company, right? For everybody but, uh, but the Audible company. Um, that would create not only a better product, but also would be much more equitable in the way that value is distributed through the platform. When this application gets built, whether or not it's built by Tokenly or built by somebody else sort of doesn't matter because Tokenly makes the most sense and will be the cheapest to provide the infrastructure support to make it all happen. So the the process right now is this. If you want to get a book published through uh, Audible, you contact them and go through an approval process essentially. They have to actually want your book and then when they sell your book, um, they keep between 50 and 60% of whatever the sale value is, whatever they sell it for, which is interesting because they have a credit system that I want to get into here. But, um, and then the narrator and the author get to split whatever is kind of left over from that. So you can already tell right off the bat, this is a totally exploitative, very monopolistic type of way to do this. Essentially, the platform is an equal partner with the content creator, which is crazy because the creation of the content is real work that has to be done by all those individuals where the platform is just something that has to be built once and then maintained. So the costs uh, to each party are totally not accurately reflected. It's just possible because, and they also demand exclusivity is another thing. So if you took uh, Audible or, and you pivoted it a little bit so that instead of it being a monopolistic, you know, uh, debt-based system basically, you make it so that it's built around the idea of token-controlled access, then here's what you wind up with. You wind up with when somebody wants to start, wants to list a book with the service, they don't ask for permission. They create a token that is going to represent their book they have their book, you know, in whatever format they're going to be selling it in, and they take both of those things to the platform. And the platform has, you know, a form essentially that's an automated uh, way to add your media, your content to the platform. 
right? So you pay the fee, whatever it is, maybe a hundred bucks, something like that. Um, you indicate the token that is going to be the access token. That is going to be the thing that within their application, when a user has this token, they can use your content. They can see your book, they can hear your audiobook, whatever. It's available in all of the applications. And this is already how Audible does it. When you buy a book from Audible, you can't actually download the book anywhere in a format that you can use on anything other than an Audible application. It's what's called a closed application environment, and it makes it so that they can actually control who owns it. You only need to do that when you don't have tokens. The possession of a token, you know, like if, if I have a book in this system, Michael, and I want to give it to you, all I have to do is send you the token, and you then have the book as long as you have the token. So I could lend it to you and expect you to give it back to me, you know, or I could just give it to you, or I could sell it to you, or I could do any of these things, because in reality, I actually own it, because I own the token. The author can, instead of looking at the platform like a partner, now can look at the platform like a service provider, where it's not, it's not about them accepting you or not. You just have to want it to be on the platform, pay them the fee that they ask in order for it to be on the platform, and then you can handle the rest yourself. They're not responsible for selling your book. They're not responsible for making sure anything happens, and you're not trapped on their platform. If there's another Audible around the corner that also offers the same service, you could be on both platforms. And when you sell that token to your users through your web page with a swap bot, um, you know, as the author, then the reader, the person who buys your book, has the choice of either or even both that they would like to have access to it because the token exists at a level above the platform. And so because of that, it can be used by many. It's not owned by Audible. This reminds me of the current LTB content submission process. The only thing that seems to be missing is a multimedia player that has token controlled access built in. Right. I mean, it really doesn't matter what use case you're looking at. I'm not even talking. I mean, like we've talked about and I've been interested for a long time in having Let's Talk Bitcoin become kind of a broader publishing platform that was able to reach into more spaces and do stuff like that. And the question has really always been, does it make sense for it to be LTB or should we just have another name? And LTB becomes the, you know, the uh, the cryptocurrency focused arm of whatever it is that we're talking about. But when you go down this rabbit hole of using tokens and token controlled access to kind of reinvent a lot of these models, then that's what you find is that these are really better ways. And they're better ways not because the old ways are bad, but they're better ways because they can do things that were impossible with the old ways. And so really it stops being about, oh, you know, should we do this or should we do that? And it starts being about what can we do now that we always wanted to do that just wasn't possible until now. That's that's interesting because I I was explaining the whole token um, concept to a friend of mine, and he asked this question. He says, well, why are tokens important? He says, because right now the user base have credit cards and they can go out and use credit cards and accomplish a lot of the same things that you can with tokens. What would be your counter argument to that? What can tokens be used for that you can't do right now? Yeah. Anytime you're talking about new technology that introduces new possibilities, getting out of the old paradigm is the difficult part. We look at the world around us and we think, oh, this is the way things are because it's the way that things are. But in reality, it's the way that things are because of the limitations that we currently face. So you talk about something like credit cards, and that is the perfect example of a solution that was good enough to work, but not good enough to be a solution. And I mean, like it, it scratches the itch, uh, you know, like you can pay with it, but there are all sorts of fundamental problems that are built into the system that are just dealt with because there wasn't another way to do it. So the thing that immediately comes to mind is that when you buy something anywhere on the internet or not, 
you don't actually own it. You own a debt until you have taken possession of it. And this is a very important thing to keep in mind. Um, tokens essentially so there are there are two things that happen in when you're buying something that happen almost simultaneously but that are important just to recognize the difference between the point of sale is the point at which you hand dollar bills or pay with your credit card or whatever to the merchant and the point of redemption is when they then give you back whatever it is that you just paid for so in the modern world there is no gap between this and that is because there is no trust. The difference between that point of sale and point of redemption uh, with tokens compared to everything else is that there's nothing to support it in credit cards or cash or anything else. You could do like a, uh, a coupon, which is effectively what tokens are. Tokens really wind up looking like uh, digital gift certificates because they represent, you know, I've paid for something and this represents the full payment of that thing. But I could give it to somebody else and it still equals full payment for their purposes. That's remarkably different than when you're talking about credit cards where payment is based entirely on identity. So you've got it from both sides. On the one side, tokens make it so that you don't have to have identity tied up in these transactions at all because identity is part of the old payment system and the new payment system doesn't need it. But then on the other hand, you've got this trust gap between, okay, I paid for something and I don't want it now. Maybe I want to send it to a friend or do something, you know, or, or sell it or whatever, but I can't do that without taking possession of it. It would be much better for me if, you know, my friend is going to be the one receiving these candles if they just deal with the uh, candle maker directly and ship, you know, get to pick the, the sizes and the scents and all these things. And all I have to do is just give them generic candle tokens that can be redeemed, you know, one per candle or one per pack of candles, what have you. Uh, it makes it very simple for them. There's no exchange rate volatility. There's no chance the price can, you know, you don't have to give people money. You're effectively giving them gift certificates. And so that's what this is. The token goes in between what were previously smushed together. So the token belongs after the point of sale, so you've already paid the merchant, but before the point of redemption. SwapBot is designed to address the point of sale and make that very simple, and TEND or token slot, depending on which version you're using, is intended to make the point of redemption really simple. But the token, that's where it exists. It exists in between that gap. And so your friend might say, uh, well, so then do we even need to use tokens if I want something, you know, if I want to buy something and use it right now? And the answer is no, you don't. Tokens don't replace the way that we do things now. They supplement it and they add more options and they add more possibilities that lacking tokens aren't there. I like that, uh, that analogy and other use case because I was having a hard time explaining to him what the benefits were. So that helps. We're moving on. So tokenly was started by you. Who are the other teams that comprise of Tokenly? Yeah, the first hire was um, Nick Rathman. When we originally hired him to work on uh, the redesign for the LTB platform in the in the months leading up to uh, the release of LTB coin, so that we could have some kind of basic support in there for that, um, he's been fantastic. And uh, I mean. Everybody who we've worked with has been absolutely fantastic, so let's just get that right out of the way right there. But Nick really has just put in the hours and been a real partner as far as, you know, I have ideas and I know what I want. I know the end result, but the how I get there 
to a certain extent, it's an advantage for me not to really understand the impossibilities of the things that I'm asking because then sometimes I ask for things that I wouldn't ask for if I really understood how difficult it was going to be. Nick is a perfect example of that. Uh, he takes my ideas and has really, uh, since the beginning, been able to interpolate them into something that's very usable and very useful. So that's been uh, great. Uh, so he's the uh, chief architect and a co-founder of Tokenly um, when we formalized that in November of uh, last year. Uh, Devin Weller first worked with us, um, I guess it would have been back when we were uh, just launching LTB coin. Um, we kind of hit a, a stumbling block where there were some tools that needed to be created before we felt like we could reasonably launch. And the, we had said that we were going to launch on certain days. And so we had this deadline coming up that was very important to hit. And if it wasn't for Devin taking on uh, the role of project manager and really making sure that everybody kept moving forward with all the pieces, including myself, uh, it wouldn't happen. And so that's how uh, I met Devin. I'm not exactly sure where he came from in thinking about it, but I think he must have popped into one of our early open meetings or something like that and just kind of uh, you know, fell into what would eventually become another co-founder role. He's the CTO at Tokenly. Um, my father, actually, you know, you mentioned uh, families. Uh, I, I've been working with my family on both Let's Talk Bitcoin and uh, Tokenly now for the entire time. They've been uh, some of the funding behind what we've been doing and in general have been about as supportive as one could possibly imagine. Um, and uh, yeah, so my father also is uh, the CFO and uh, co-founder of Tokenly. And that pretty much comprises the, the core team as it is right now. On the contractor side, we have um, Andy Beal uh, as our legal counsel. Um, and uh, Rob Mitchell, who also is the host of the Bitcoin game, has done a ton of art for us. He does uh, pretty much anytime I have art, I can throw to somebody. He is the guy and I really like his style. Um, and then uh, Marcin Roberski. Uh, has uh, done a lot of contract design work for us on both the Tokenly website that's coming up and the um, and the oh and uh, the swap bot design. Uh, he was very instrumental in that. And uh, yeah, so so the team is very small. The team is very small. Oh, I forgot to mention Joe Looney. Joe Looney isn't officially uh, with the team, but he's totally vital to the team. He's the developer, uh, the community developer who has voluntarily. Um, you know, built the open source first LTB companion and then the Tokenly Pockets wallet. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're going to hire him as quickly as we can. But uh, but so far, he's just been working kind of as a community developer in the space. And yeah, so, so that's the team. Um, and it's interesting. You know, we definitely are lacking some people at this point. I fill the CEO role. But I'm really more of a catalyst and I'm really more of like I, I at other companies, I've taken the role chief visionary officer because that's the thing that I'm really good at. I, I like to write, um, you know, like a couple thousand words every couple of months, basically talking about where we're going next and what I think the next thing is going to be and what I think the next focus is going to be. And so it's been really interesting to kind of see that when I try to project out more than like six months, I'm pretty uniformly wrong. But if I try to project out three months, I'm pretty much right. <laughs> and some of the early stuff that uh, and some of the early stuff that I uh, wrote, you know, the the document that I called uh, the watershed uh, project uh, is what would effectively eventually become tokenly. And I wrote that and presented it in New York back in uh, spring of 2013, no, summer of 2013, uh, almost two years ago, actually, it was the 31st of July. Um, and uh, that has, again, proven to be it was sort of funny, because I forgot about it when the project didn't happen. But Turns out, Tokenly has been exactly what I wanted to do back then. I just kind of forgot about it 
since I wrote it so long ago. So, um, yeah. Well, that's good. How did you go about funding this? I know you mentioned earlier that you got some funds from family members, but so talk a bit about the funding and then particularly for the developers that came on, did you pay them out of pocket or did you pay them in rewards of LTB coin? Well, so you're still talking to me at a time when we are pre-funding. Um, we have been self-funded now for, I mean, like the, the Let's Talk Bitcoin project broadly has been self-funded the entire time. Um, but Tokenly has, you know, we've been putting money into that for quite a while. And it's been not an insubstantial amount of money, too. Um, I did get some money from family, and they certainly have been very supportive. But Tokenly as a whole has been paid for by, uh, you know, by cryptocurrency basically <laughs> uh you know um i've done a lot of things and uh cryptocurrency worked out for me in a couple of circumstances and so whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing to do rather than you know pull it out and become comfortable in life we've just you know piled it right back into this stuff so tokenly as you see it now is pretty much the you know result of a year and a half of me being in cryptocurrency and making one or two right decisions okay. did you pay any of the developers with a reward being uh, ltb coin or no Recently, we've started. So we recently launched a token called Tokenly because now that we actually have these services available, uh, whichever ones you're talking about, um, and you have to pay for them with something, it made sense to create a digital gift certificate that represented our digital gift certificate and was the best way to do any of that stuff. So yeah, actually, specifically in the last maybe month since we launched this alpha, um, I have been paying out small amounts of tokenly to people who then sometimes go and trade it for LTB coin or sometimes go and uh, you know use it or some I, I don't actually know what everybody has done with it again it's a token so I can't tell until they redeem it but um, but yeah we have been doing that and it seems to be working for people you know the the real issue with tokens is just when they're not valuable there's no reason to have them and if you think they're going to be more valuable in the future well maybe that's a reason to have it but it is speculative. And that was something that was true with LTB coin that I did not want to be true with the tokenly token. I wanted the tokenly token to have a nice stable value that was dictated by what it could be used for. And frankly, since it's being sold into circulation, um, you know, as a redeemable gift certificate rather than being given away, that made a lot more sense with what we're doing there. Uh, let's talk Bitcoin and the the token. I really don't know what's going to happen with it. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with it. But as things become more available on the tokenly side, I fully expect that we're going to see the value of LTB coin go up just because there's more utility for it. Well, speaking of the LTB coin, I recently uh, exchanged some of my LTB coin for tokenly. So that was something that I saw as a means of getting from having accumulation of these LTB coins and actually exchanging them for something that had real value, so to speak. So yeah, value that's not subjective. That's the thing is like the value of and that is really at the core, the difference between currency type applications, and all this other stuff that I'm working on with with uh, with tokenly, when I saw the the regulations that were being written, um, whether you're talking about New York or California or anywhere, um, they all were taking this monetary approach that cryptocurrency is de facto money. And so because of that, it has all of these onerous requirements placed on it that we normally place on people who deal with money or other people's money. And so for 
gosh, I mean, when, from before I was talking about uh, tokenly in a serious way, the, it was really obvious to me that we needed non-monetary and non-currency uses of tokens. And so again, it's, it's much the same thing here. So the question is, and the difference is, is that LTB coin is not a redeemable token. LTB coin is a usable token, it's an exchangeable token, but it has no redemption value. And that's different about pretty much everything else we're doing, whether you're talking about, you know, like uh, the contraband coffee token that's redeemable for coffee or the tokenly token that's redeemable for tokenly services. These are things that can be used right now that have fixed values and where the value is not dictated by the market, but is instead dictated by the person who is creating that value and offering it. And it's not like there's less risk in that situation. It's just a different risk. Instead of, you know, it being, oh, well, the market might make a decision. It's, oh, well, this person might make a decision. So it comes down to really what you think of the person, what you think of the company, and also how much you perceive of a reputation hit they could take if they do do something that is not, you know, not appropriate. What's next for Tokenly? I don't really know, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, we're playing it by ear at this point. Uh, we're, you know, a very young company. Um, we don't have a ton of costs, and so we're kind of just cruising through this period of, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're basically just trying to see what works and what doesn't. And the things that work, we're focusing more on that, and the things that don't, we're not focusing more on. We are about to, we have not yet, we're about to start taking appointments where we're going to talk with venture capitalists and uh, you know, variety of private investors and, and see how this kind of tokenly as an infrastructure uh, company is going to be received. But ultimately, I think that we might find that it's a little bit too boring. And the thing that we have to do is we have to say, okay, well, now that we've built this you know, set of tools, we'll do the next thing. And the next thing is going to be doing something like you know, the Audible application um, you know, or attacking one of these very specific markets that has such obvious advantages for moving over to tokens. And yet nobody is doing it because there's not an awareness of tokens. You know, again, like taking a market like that where people are already using application environments, where people are already used to paying for these things and already used to using them in what are effectively digital wallets and the conversion from, you know, uh, use tokens for your audiobooks instead of using non-tokens for your audiobooks is absolutely simple and trivial when compared to trying to explain to somebody why they should use a different type of money than the one that they've you know used all their lives and that's working fine for them. So to a large degree, uh, whatever we do with Tokenly, it is a Trojan horse for Bitcoin and for cryptocurrency because these things are not really compatible with the old way. Um, just like you don't want to sell Bitcoin for PayPal, it's pretty much the same thing here. Somebody can reverse the PayPal transaction, but the token is gone. So necessarily, anybody who's using tokens, anybody who finds them really valuable and wants to, you know, take the couple of steps to get into that ecosystem, once they're in, it's just like Napster, you know, like, oh, this is a better way. It wasn't that hard to do it. I'm already done with the onboarding step. I guess I'll just use this stuff. So, you know, whether we're right or not, it's going to be interesting, but it, that's that's been kind of my argument all along is that tokens complete the value proposition that has been said about and said about cryptocurrency for a very long time which is that they uh it's a better form of money and that's true but it doesn't matter <laughs> a better form of money isn't necessarily what people are asking for people are asking for solutions to their problems and those problems in large part can be solved by tokens okay what would you need from the LTB community in terms of marketing of tokenly to them to say, 
because I know that you have Spell of Genesis. You mentioned Contraband Coffee. Uh, I think there's one gentleman that's offering music composition and editing and a variety of other people that are offering SWAT bots. But what will be your call to action for the community to assist in um, furthering this this tokenly revolution? Honestly, um, it's hard to ask for stuff from the audience for me, <laughs> which is a little bit funny. But um, I think the, the simple thing that people can do is just install the wallet. It's a good Bitcoin wallet. It's very usable. You can get it at pockets.tokenly.com. Um, and, uh, and it basically will handle you being convertible with tokens, you being able to use tokens and you can still absolutely use Bitcoin. You can use the LTBN directory and all the other stuff that's in there and, uh, you know, makes it easy to send to other people on the network. But the reason to do it is so that then when you are ready to use a token, when you see a token that somebody's offering where you say, oh, that makes sense to me, I would buy that and give it as a gift, or I would buy that in bulk and redeem it over time or any of these other things, uh, you know, that I think is is the real valuable thing. And if if people are, uh, you know, if you run a business, whether you're offering hourly time or, or what have you, I really do think that we have to hit this critical mass of uh, of people who are offering useful, valuable things for tokens in order for there to be enough of a reason for most people to to convert. So that again is partly our fault um, because we haven't done a good job of promoting this yet because everything is in alpha and all that other stuff. But I mean, that's that's what I'm eventually going to ask of people is that people who offer these services, offer goods and services as a business or as a private individual, that you just look at tokens and see if the advantages that they offer in terms of bulk discounts, redistribution, gift exchanges, all these other things um, are compelling and you think that there's something that you'd like to add. Because if they are, I think it makes a ton of sense. One of the interesting things to me is that now that we've come out with our solution, there are two or three others that are going to be out reasonably soon that, uh, again, will build out this token infrastructure and that are going to be broadly compatible with all the stuff that we're doing. So I don't really think it's going to be about, um, it's going to necessarily be about us. I think that it's going to be about, you know, we're, we're the how, but the how is only interesting to people who need to know how to do it or need help doing it. The why is the important part. And I think that that's going to come from the outside. Okay. One other thought I had, will LTB allow content creators to create content for tokens? So right now, as a contributor, I can write a document um, or I can host a podcast and put it on the network. But if I were to tie that to a token and say, using the TCA, only those that have that could listen to that content. Is that something that you all have thought about? Yep. We're totally going in that direction. Um, token controlled access is something that we first implemented onto forums. Um, and we're actually, I'm not sure this has been announced yet. We have a, a major redesign coming up that will basically uh, modernize the site and integrate a lot of these early features that we put in kind of in prototype form. So the forums are going to be the first example of that. But yeah, no, Michael, you've completely identified where we're going with this stuff next. Um, when it comes to, uh, like, you'll be able to have a blog that can be token controlled access on either just to like a, you can't even look at the blog you know, visit the front page of the blog unless you have the correct token. Or you could also have uh, posts where, okay, you can look at the front page of the blog, but in order to read the full post and not get kind of the abridged post, 
well, you need to have a token. And that can be done on a post-by-post basis. Or you could have it be that, okay, well, within the post, you can see the whole post, but if you have this particular token, well, you can see this bonus part that is, you know, kind of supplemental to the post. And that can actually be layered. So you could have three or four different tokens where each one provides a different type of access on a given post. Uh, So, I mean, like, yeah, like the possibilities are pretty much endless when it comes to this stuff. And token-controlled access makes a lot of sense in a lot of different places. Whether It's not just websites. You're also talking about applications. You're also talking... I mean, basically, token-controlled access can effectively replace passwords. So, yeah. You know, I mean, and the most important thing to me about it, of course, is that when you have a token, you actually own it. You can't guarantee that somebody is going to redeem it, just like you can't guarantee what the price of Bitcoin is going to be when you redeem it. But you can guarantee that you own it, that you provably have it, that the only way you could have gotten it was by getting it from the person who created it and sold it to you in the first place. And if you didn't buy it from them, then you bought it from somebody else or somebody else gave it to you who did. It's just the way the tokens work, just like Bitcoin. It's like, I can't create a new Bitcoin and give it to you. You would, I mean, like it you literally can't do it. Same thing with tokens. All of Tokenly right now is open sourced. Is that true? And will it continue to be true? Or are there aspects of Tokenly that's going to be closed source for the purpose of protecting your business and creating value proposition as you as you go forward? We are attempting to do this as an entirely open source project and not just open source, but also permissively licensed, which means that if you want to not just look at the source, but take it and uh, deploy an installation of it and sell our services to other customers, then you can do that too. Is that if it becomes an impediment to have these permissive licenses because we're finding, okay, you know, everybody is just competing with us and nobody is contributing back, then we would have to evaluate it because Tokenly as a project, whether it continues or not, is largely dependent on us being able to find revenue models that make sense and that can scale and that really provide service that is valuable. I think that we've done that. But again, we kind of create competition when we, you know, have these permissively licensed uh, sources. So, you know, I've talked with a lot of people and, uh, you know, you look at somebody like uh, Open Bazaar and they're doing the same thing. They're completely open source, completely permissively licensed, but they got really visionary funders. And then you look at other projects, you know, I was talking with the Streamium guys the other day and they built their prototype as a completely open source, completely decentralized, free sort of thing. But now that they're funding their business, they're really not thinking that that's what it's going to be, that they're thinking it's going to be a proprietary product because ultimately that's what investors demand. So I'm not exactly sure where we're going to wind up in that spectrum, but uh, the intention is to have everything at least be open source for, you know, ever. From the psychology side, why are you an entrepreneur? What's your motivation and passion? Oh, that's a good question. Because I want to solve problems. Because mostly, mostly I don't want to solve problems just like generically in a vacuum. I want to solve problems that are really annoying to me and that have been for a long time. You asked what, you know, very early in our conversation, what about LTB? And that was what it was about LTB is that I saw solutions to problems that I had faced in starting doing podcasts. And the community, again, same thing, is that trying to do community on the internet basically meant trying to do community on the internet without getting any money from anybody in the community to do community on the internet because all the methods were terrible for doing it. So cryptocurrency, you know, and and the other thing, of course, is that, yeah, I mean, if you have a couple thousand dollars to throw at the problem, then it gets a lot easier. But that was never really a situation that I found myself in. Like I've thinking back and looking back at the people who I worked with, you know, even back like the guy uh, who did my first website for the gaming podcast I did in 2005, uh, you know, went on to be an engineer at Apple and was in charge of the division the last time I, uh, for one of their projects last time I was uh, checking. So, I mean, like, 
I didn't pay anybody. I haven't paid anybody ever for any of these projects. And that was in large part not because I hate paying people, but because there was never a good way to monetize any of this stuff. And so, you know, that's where we are now is that there are solutions available to problems that I always felt. And it would be crazy given the opportunity to not fix them. Okay. Do you have a mentor? And if so, what's the most important lesson you learned from him or her? I don't have a direct mentor. Um, I've had a lot of mentors over time. I've been a mentor a lot of times. Uh, in this particular thing, I really think just observation becomes your mentor after a very, very brief period of time because all of this stuff is happening in public. And that's so unusual. All of this development, you know, Bitcoin is a perfect example, but it's also true of many of the companies around Bitcoin is that they want to be inclusive. They want to build something that from the ground up is not about them, but is about us. And that's a really powerful thing. So I think that I've attempted to follow in the footsteps of some of the earlier, uh, you know, um, the earlier entrepreneurs who were not entrepreneurs first, they were Bitcoin people first, and then they came to entrepreneurship because it was the natural logical extension of that thing that they felt about Bitcoin. It was just kind of the taking the theory and putting it in practice. It's much the same here. Um, so my, my guidance would just be keep, you know, paying it, pay attention and uh, pay attention to what other people are doing, pay attention to what's going on around you and uh, try to learn from stuff even when you aren't the one making the mistake because it's much better to do that than the other. We have another segment in the show that we call Off Topic. Just have a couple questions for you. Who's your favorite entertainer? My favorite entertainer? That's a really hard question. <laughs> okay, we're going to the next one. What's your favorite book? Favorite book? Probably Ender's Game uh, by Orson Scott Card. Other than the businesses that you're currently working on? What are you also passionate about? I'm passionate about solutions. So it just sort of depends on whatever I'm, I'm working on, right? And like whatever I'm thinking about, that's the thing that I get passionate about. And I'm not like, I, I really have a difficult time focusing on more than one thing at a time. I'm very single-minded. And it's the sort of thing where like even to the point where when we're talking about food, like if I'm eating something that I enjoy, I would eat that for the next two weeks. Like I no no variety necessary whatsoever. I just like if I'm enjoying it, then I want to keep eating it. There's no need to a break, and it's much the same thing with my attention on all these things. How can people contact you? Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com uh, is the email for anything related to the show or the network, and Adam at tokenly.com gets me for anything related to tokens, projects, or consulting. So yeah, thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thank you all for listening to this episode of The Startup. Contents for the show was provided by Adam and Michael. If you are a founder of a startup and would like to be on the show, please email michael at mikepair at gmail.com. That's M-I-K-E-P-A-I-R at gmail.com. Oh, wait, I almost forgot. Here's a collaboration with Adam, DJ Leo, and myself. Hope you enjoy. Bitcoin is. The show is most much, much, much. People away. create content because it's what they love. Concept Bitcoin. And just superimpose a QR code. The job that they love. You don't trust any other currency. This is where you go. Very easy.
time.